Great. Good evening. Great to see um, the top halves of your faces. Um, you've all got really lovely eyes. Um, I can't vouch for your noses because I can't see them, but I'm sure they're lovely too. Um, Anyway, yeah, for any of you who don't know me, who haven't met me yet, um, my name is Rachel, and along with my husband, Jim, who's sitting in the front, um, we have the privilege and delight of leading this absolutely lovely church. So tonight, as Caitlin said, we are continuing our series in Genesis, and we are looking at chapter 3. This very beginning section of our Bibles, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, offer us a three-part insight into how the world came to be the way that it is today. Genesis 1, our almighty, powerful God speaks the world into being, creating order and goodness. Genesis 2, God lovingly and intimately creates mankind, and everything is how God wanted it to be. It's perfect. And then comes Genesis 3, Big sigh. This is the chapter where we're introduced to a creature who's in rebellion to God and who's out to cause a rift between God and humanity. And sadly enough, as I'm sure I don't need to tell you, mankind falls for it. They're tricked into rebelling and they damage the perfect world that God has just created. And along with that, they damage the perfect unity between the creator and the created. It is not a particularly rosy picture, this one, unfortunately. But before I say any more about it, why don't we read the passage together? Um, If you've got a Bible with you, it would be great if you could uh, follow along. It will be on the screen, and Maddie is going to come and read it for us now. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We must eat fruit fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will, uh, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? He answered, oh, I, I heard you walking in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Uh, and he said, who told you you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to not eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust in all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desires will be to to your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree um, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat their food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, from dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she had become the mother of all living things. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out of the place and onto the east of the Garden of Eden, uh, cherubim and a a flaming sword sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Thank you, Maddie. Whoo, what a passage. So this evening, I am going to walk us through that mammoth passage in verse order and look at the story of Adam and Eve and think about how the way this story plays out is very similar, actually, to the story of our own sin and God's reaction to it. For those of you who like a one-sentence takeaway from a sermon, I've got one for you this evening. My takeaway, short and snappy from this passage this evening, and the thing that I'd love for you to take home, is that sin is serious, but that redemption is real. And just before we dive in, I'm going to be using the word sin a lot in the next wee while. So before I get started, let's just make sure that we're all on the same page about what that means. A simple definition of sin is a failure to love God and a failure to love others. 
There's, of course, so much more that could be said on that, but I thought a quick definition would be good um, as we talk about this passage. And in case any of you are interested, I didn't come up with that myself. I stole it from the Bible Project, and they are absolutely wonderful at taking quite complex um, things from the Bible and explaining them in really uh, handy, easy-to-access ways. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, I would highly recommend the Bible Project. You can Google them. Let's get started on the passage, shall we? Verse 1, a crafty serpent appears, we're told. This serpent is Satan, a creature that's in rebellion against God and whose goal is to, turn, uh, is to lead God's people into rebellion and death. This is the first time we've seen anything that isn't good. This is the world's introduction to evil a part of God's creation that has turned against him and is out to break all that is good. It's important to note that this evil is not from God. It's not some other angry side of God's character, and it's not a rival God or anything like that. This enemy does unfortunately have influence, but he is nowhere near on the same level as Yahweh, creator God. The first verse of Genesis 3 introduces us to Satan, and we see the relationship between him, humanity, and God. And then it shows us how he works, and that is to pull us away from our creator and disrupt the goodness and the order and the intimacy that God created for us. As the beginning of the passage says, this serpent is crafty and he uses some very effective tactics for his mission. The first of these is that little question in the first verse. Did God really say? Those four words that imply that God's command to Eve not to eat from that one tree is not reasonable. And with that, Satan sows the first seeds of doubt into Eve's mind as to whether God really does have her and Adam's best interests at heart, which up until now, she has never had any reason to question. I reckon this pesky little question is also what gets us into all kinds of knots and leads us down paths away from God. This did God really say leads us into either doubting God's goodness or doubting our memory or our interpretation of what God has said to us. Did God really say that I should preach? Did God really say that I should give my hard-earned money away to this struggling family? I've found that in these moments, actually, yes, God did, in fact, really say. Speaking practically, if we want to avoid some of those moments of questioning what we've heard God say, I recommend two practical tests. The first of these is our Bibles. God has not only said but it's been written down for us. We've got a whole book of it. And that's a really handy check for those did God really say questions. And secondly, I recommend taking notes of the things that we think we hear God saying and then asking faithful friends to pray and listen out for us too. And While we mention it, a really great way of doing both of those things, both digging into the Bible and having people around you that are praying for you, some of you might have guessed what I'm about to say, is joining a home group. 
and surrounding yourselves with a little community of people who will do exactly those things with you and for you. We've actually got some new home groups starting this week, and if you are not part of one, if you haven't signed up, then one of the things that I know Caitlin would love to do this week is to slot you into a new group. They haven't started yet, so you're not too late. We would love to hear from you. Caitlin at kingdomvineyard.com is your friend. (laughs) Moving on, this question, still on this question from the serpent in chapter 1 also involves a twisting of God's words. Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What God actually said in chapter 2, 16 and 17 was, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan's negative spin on God's words dig that seed of doubt even further, by making God sound restrictive and like he's put Adam and Eve in this beautiful, luscious garden that's better than they could ever imagine, but given them like a, you can look but don't touch instruction over all of it. And that just couldn't be further from the truth or actually from God's heart. Part of what makes Satan so crafty is his subtle twisting of things. He'll take what we've heard God say, give it a quick makeover to make God sound like a baddie, and then feed it back to us. God's heart for Adam and Eve, and for us, for all of us, is to fill our lives with things that are good for us and protect us from anything that isn't. Satan made it sound to Adam and Eve like God was withholding something good from them, but that just isn't true. The conversation between Eve and the serpent continues. Eve's big mistake in continuing this conversation with the devil is that she's actually just giving him more and more opportunities to spin stories and drag her away from God. The big lesson for us here is beware debating the devil. As soon as you hear an idea that you think might be from him, run a mile resist his lies. Don't give him that in of your thoughts. If you do find that, find yourself in that kind of situation where you think the enemy just might be trying to get at you, just run to Jesus. Ask him to speak truth to you. And remember that actually when we call on the name of Jesus, the devil can do nothing but flee. We are so safe with Jesus. So at this point in the story, actually, Eve would have done well to have called time on the conversation and walked away, perhaps going to find God in a different part of the garden. But unfortunately, she doesn't. And the serpent has yet more to say. Don't be daft. You won't die. You'll be just like God. Wait, what? And deeper goes that seed of doubt. Did God tell Eve the full story when he instructed them not to touch that tree? Is he hiding something from them? Why does this serpent know more about this than Eve does? The crucial missing piece of information in this conversation between the serpent and Eve is that God has already given Adam and Eve everything they could possibly need. A life alongside their creator in perfect harmony in a beautiful garden full of food to eat, and even a companion to enjoy life alongside. 
But the serpent persuades Eve that there's more, that she could be like God. The problem is they're already like God in the best possible way. They're created in his image. And they get to spend their time in, with him in unbroken unity. There's no way they could be more like God short of becoming God. And that's what the serpent is trying to persuade Eve into here. To be comparable to God, but without, crucially, that relationship with God. Satan is dangling the carrot in front of her of God-like power and wisdom, but separate from God. And he's portraying that as a good thing. We were designed for a trusting relationship with God. That is our best possible state. Having God-like power and wisdom in our lives, but without that relationship with God, is a terrible, terrible deal. In verses 6 and 7, the serpent has successfully convinced Eve, and she takes a bite. The tree looked good, tasted good, and would bring Eve the benefits of wisdom. Eve had been led by the serpent into using the wrong criteria for deciding what is good. Up until now, God declares things good. And Adam and Eve have enjoyed the benefits of those good things. But now the devil has sown doubt in Eve about whether there's something good that God didn't tell them about. So she uses her own measure based on the serpent's measure of what is good. And she decides, looks good to me, guess it's good. She takes a bite. Then Adam's bite of the apple follows quickly after without even a mention of, hey Eve, are you sure this is a good idea? In this one moment, Adam and Eve have made two colossal mistakes. They've broken trust with God by choosing not to believe what he told them, and they've made the decision to redefine what is good. God asks us to trust him, and he has time and time again proven that he is worthy of that trust. But when we go our own way and we decide for ourselves what's good, especially when that goes in direct contrast to something that God has said, we break that trust between us and our creator. And the way to make sure that we don't fall into this same trap is easy to say and more of a challenge to do. We need to turn to God completely away from all else we need to trust him entirely and we need to look to his promises and his words and his word, sorry, to work out what is good and what isn't. If any of, that, of you have got that sorted, please do let me know because I certainly haven't. Now comes verse 7 and Adam and Eve's realization of what they've done. For the first time, they see that sin is serious. They feel ashamed and exposed. So they cover up and hide. Where are you? Says God. Notice, God's first words to Adam and Eve after they eat from the tree is not an instant ultimatum. They've just disobeyed God's one instruction. And yet, 
God comes to find them and he invites them into a conversation. He loves these people. He wants to find a way straight away as soon as possible to restore their relationship. Because sin is serious, but redemption is real. This pattern of events sounds rather similar to what happens when I do something that I'm fairly sure God isn't pleased with. I realize what I've done, I feel ashamed, and I just want to hide. But this passage shows me that God comes looking for me. He asks me where I am. He's inviting me to realize where I am and into a conversation with him about it because he wants to restore my relationship with him. Verse 12, and we shift from shame to blame. Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the serpent. Because actually, when humanity's relationship with God is fractured, our relationships with one another also suffer the consequences. It's true that not all of our sin is a solo effort. Sometimes we find ourselves drawn into something we're fairly sure isn't right because it's what everyone else is doing or because someone we trust convinces us it's a good idea, just like Adam and Eve. If we're going to stand a chance of resisting these temptations, we need to spend our lives getting familiar with what God says is good and not good and allowing ourselves to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Romans 12 verse 2 puts it like this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How do we do this? We spend time with God. We spend time reading what he really said. And we spend time with people who encourage us in true, godly renewing of our minds. Again, home groups, great way to do this. Moving on to verses 14 to 19, and we come on to the consequences of Adam and Eve's actions. Notice, though, we only come on to the consequences after God has sought a conversation with Adam and Eve. This is another example of how, yes, their sin is serious, but redemption is real. And what I find particularly fascinating about this next section on curses is that God's first and harshest words are not for Adam and Eve. They're for the serpent, the one who led Adam and Eve into sin. God pronounces this serpent cursed above all animals for the rest of its life. There are no more chances for him. That is it. Contrast that then with what God says to Adam and Eve. These are stern words, do not get me wrong, but he doesn't actually curse them like he curses the serpent. He curses the ground in a way that will make it more difficult for Adam to work, and he tells Eve that childbirth will be difficult, but they are not in and of themselves cursed. What does this tell us about how God relates to us and our sin today? To me, God's reaction to Adam and Eve's sin tells me two things. 
The first is that he seems pretty angry with those who cause others to sin. Perhaps even more upset with them than he is with those who actually sin. In Matthew 18, verse 6, Jesus says, If anyone causes these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Yikes. Those are some very strong words for those who lead others into sin. The second thing this tells us is actually that God is always looking to give us opportunities to be reunited with him after we've done something that pulls us away from him. Redemption is real. The next things to happen in this passage are that Adam names his wife Eve because she will be the mother of all things in verse 20. And then God makes them clothes covering their shame. This is yet more redemption. Despite their sin, God provides for Adam and Eve to have a future. Sin is serious, but redemption is real. And despite our sin, we have a future. Jesus paid the highest price to make that the case. When we sin, we need to take action to make it right again between us and God. We need to ask for his forgiveness and to be reunited with him. And Jesus' death on the cross for you and me means that if we ask for forgiveness, we will be forgiven. No punishment, no being kicked out of the family. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In case you haven't heard this before, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the blameless behavior that would earn us a relationship with God under our own, sorry, in our own strength. There we go, trying to mix metaphors. Going to start that sentence again. In case you haven't heard this before, you can never hear this too many times, all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the blameless behavior that would earn us a relationship with God in our own strength. We're all broken and we're all in need of Jesus' restoration. We all need to come to him and say, I'm sorry, I turn away from my broken way of living and I choose your way, God. Please forgive me. This is a prayer that God really, really, really loves to answer. He's waiting to answer that prayer. And not one of us, not any one of us, is too far gone in the other direction to say those words to the creator of the universe who, despite being holy and pure and powerful and all of those things, still loves you, still loves me so, so much. Finally, in our passage, there are consequences for Adam and Eve. The tree of life, which they were once allowed to eat from, became forbidden. They would no longer live forever And they were no longer able to live in the garden with God in the same way they had been able to before. 
Their sin was serious. Our sin is serious. And our own broken relationships have lasting consequences between each other and between us and God. I love seeing people make the steps to be reconciled to each other. It's a wonderful thing, usually involving some really stunning grace. And similarly, with God, even when our sin has caused painful and even lasting consequences, he reaches out to us over and over and over again to bring restoration between him and us, and even sometimes some supernatural healing thrown in there for good measure too. Our sin is serious, but his redemption is so, so real. And so, as we conclude this evening, Genesis 3 brings us to the end of the three-part origins and identity introduction to the world that the Bible offers us. And it explains why the good, ordered creation by a God who is both hugely powerful and intimately here got broken. Genesis 3 tells us what evil is like, how it stands in relation to God and within this created order and actually corrupted disorder. But it also shows us God's loving care for us, despite our mixing up with evil. Genesis 3 shows us how humanity turned away from God, and it shines a light on how we follow these same patterns of doubt, temptation, and sin. We question whether God really said. We stop trusting in his character, and we take the definition of good into our own hands rather than leaving that to God. But Genesis 3 also shows us that long before Jesus came into the world and died for us, God was already looking for ways to bring us back, to bring you back, to bring me back into relationship with him. This redemption was going on right from the very, very beginning. Genesis 3 shows us that our sin is serious, but that redemption is real. Why don't you stand? And I'd love to pray for you. Father God, we thank you so much that though we have sinned, you are waiting to restore our relationship with you. Thank you that all we have to do is ask. Father, would you forgive us wherever it is that we need forgiveness? Lord, I pray this evening for anyone who is particularly feeling the effects of living in a broken world. I pray for those who are hurting through the actions of others, who are sad because of broken relationships. 
Lord, I just pray your blessing over whoever that might be. Would you meet them? Would you restore them? And would you heal them? Would you come, Holy Spirit, and do what only you can do? Amen.